Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Nathan, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to talk about ESG, quality, value, and a whole heap of other things that relate to Australian and maybe global equities as well. But first of all, I'd just like to know a bit more about my guests and and so does the community behind RASC. I know you've been investing for quite a long time, but one thing I do think about a lot is that like investing is like this pursuit of knowledge and the accumulation of curiosities, if you will. And each and every day, we are either humbled or we learn something. And I'm curious, what's one thing that maybe stands out to you over the past year that you might have learned about investing or business or life in general? Uh, firstly, I love the way you, you frame that, I guess, pursuit and curiosity, because that's exactly what we do on a daily basis. And you're always trying to, to learn uh, a little bit more about how the world works and how you can apply that to investing and hopefully make some better decisions and returns for your clients. But look, you also said humbled and, you know, I am humbled on a daily basis. The markets are a, a great level up. And look, to be honest, I'm learning things all the time. I'm learning every day. It's hard to kind of pinpoint one thing. But look, one thing I would say, just reflecting on the last 12 months and with all the macro news flow and what's happened with interest rates in particular is just how hard timing the market can actually be. And that's something that you read and and you sometimes forget about because you're caught up in all the noise and the news flow. I mean, if you said that the RBA would lift rates from 10 basis points to 3.85%, you'd probably have a different view on the market and where a lot of stocks would be, but it doesn't always work that way. So I think it's just really a reminder of how futile trying to make the big market calls and timing the market can actually be and that it's more relevant and worthwhile focusing on the bottom-up and the stock specifics. Yeah, I really do like that as someone who comes from uh, a value investing background, you could say, although I don't try to put myself in too many camps these days. My follow-up question is normally one that we expand on, but given it's more of an icebreaker question, I'll ask you to be as concise as you can. Sure. Although this, we could probably make a whole podcast about this, just this one question, which is, I say ASX just to make it relevant, but if you have any other relevant companies, like an ASX business model and why you found it so impressive, I guess, is, is what I'm going for. And hopefully... The MBAs in the room can relate to some things that you maybe pull, have pulled apart from this business. Sure, and I'll, I'll try and be really concise. But when you think good business models, you think capital light, 
high returns on capital, uh, network effects, barriers to entry, all that sort of stuff. And the one that sticks out in my mind is a company called Vita, which was the Consumer Credit Reporting Bureau. And the beauty of the model was that they effectively collected customer data for free and then packaged it up and sold it back <laughs> to the banks. So you had this incredible, you had an entrenched position, uh, which was very sticky with the customer base. They're selling the product to the banks. It's pretty integral information. So they'd use it for their credit assessment. And they were selling it at something like $6 a pop. So not a big, big expense in the bank's world. And just given their position, they had a fair bit of pricing power. But I mean, the beauty of collecting something essentially for free or, or very low marginal costs and selling it back meant they made enormous margins. And that business was actually eventually acquired by a company called Equifax in the US. Mm, I remember this. And uh, for those people that don't know, like any of these credit reporting businesses or yeah, anything that basically is both regulated and the cost of like the acquisition of the IP is zero or thereabouts. It's a, it's a pretty beautiful business model, that's for sure. And I've, I've totally forgotten about it because it was acquired. Yeah. But you follow Equifax in the US, right? Yeah, lo- loosely, loosely. I mean, we owned Vita here. It was a, a great investment for us, but it was uh, you know, a terrific business. And I think looking forward, obviously, there's technological change, but I think their data and the role they play has probably got even more important just given some of the scams and importance on identity theft and cyber because they were quite active in those spaces as well in terms of KYC and, and ID fraud. So I think that I haven't followed it particularly closely, but I'm sure that business would have gone from strength to strength under Equifax's ownership. Mm, for sure. Uh, okay, one more uh, icebreaker question from me, which is um, trying to tease out, I guess, some of the philosophy, which we'll touch on in a minute. But um, if you could pick just the cash flow statement or an income statement, and I'll say over three years, so you get some, maybe it takes out some of the cyclicality, maybe, of a business. And this is the only information that I presented to you. Like, which statement would you take and, and what would you be looking for in that statement? Yeah, definitely cash flow. I think the three years is important because it'll, it'll remove some of that cyclicality or, or lumpiness around end of period timing of, of payments and things like that. So hopefully three gives you enough of a read. Mm. Uh, but you can look at the conversion of earnings. Uh, if you don't have the income statement, you can't. But you're looking for proper cash flow generation. How capital intensive is the business? Does it require big investment in working capital, big investment in fixed assets? But also how does it fund itself? Does it rely on equity capital? Or does it fund itself sustainably and, and then can it pay decent dividends out of cash flow? So I think that can give you, if you had only that, I think that would give you a really good insight into the uh, ins and outs of a business. Mm. I remember like, you know, times gone by when they wouldn't have as many statements as us to make the decisions that we do now or anywhere near the accounting rigor. Still, it comes back to the cash flow statement for basically everyone that likes to invest in a bottom-up way. I've got a few questions that I'd like to know a bit about you and your role today and basically how you got to where you are. We have a lot of investors who may be in their 50s and 60s who listen to the show, Nathan, but we also have quite a few that are in their 30s, 40s. And um, many of them, not all of them, but many of them want to or often think about transitioning to investor or private investor or even just managing their own money more effectively. But I'm curious how this spark was set off for you, this idea around money and finance and investing, whether it was at a young age, whether it came later. And I guess if you could paint that scene for us, like who mentored you, like any memories you have, and then we can roll from there. Sure. Look, so I probably was a little bit later than some. You know, you hear stories of 
people who bought their first stock at 13. That wasn't me. I mean, my first memory was probably playing the share market game in commerce at high school. Don't, don't think I did really well. <laughs> but I think um, where my passion kind of came from, so when I left school, I studied at University of Wollongong, but I was studying part-time and I took a full-time job in an accounting firm. I was only age 17 or 18 at the time. And I saw all my clients with these big bulging stock portfolios and I just became interested in seeing what was in some people's portfolio, what wasn't, what had done really well. And it really just kind of came from there. And I, I started investing personally. The first stock I bought was an absolute disaster. It was a company called Unwired. Unwired. Unwired, yeah. It was like an internet modem provider. Okay. That ended up getting acquired. But long after I sold, I think I dusted half my money on that. And, and I remember my mum saying to me, do you actually know what you're doing? But um, <laughs> like, I think for, for those who are looking to invest, I'm probably jumping to the end, I guess, like the best thing to do is start investing yourself if you're not already and, and keep track of your decision-making if you can so that you can learn from your mistakes. I, I find that's the best way to learn and, and ultimately in those early years I did make a lot of mistakes. But so I worked as an accountant for a number of years to my mid-20s and decided I wanted to try something different and I was lucky enough to get a, a job here at Perpetual in distribution support essentially. So not not investing per se but I guess, in the building, if you like, with a, a foot in the door. And by that stage, I had decided oh, my passion was investing. And um, we run a program here at Perpetual called the Investment Analyst Program, where each year we invite applicants from all across the business to pitch their wares. And we take five or six successful candidates and basically give them a, a crash course in investing the perpetual way. So a bit of the history of the firm, our process, how we do things, access to all sort of facets of the business. So there's some admin, there's the dealing desk, there's the analyst, the portfolio managers. And at the end of it, you're invited to pitch to the team on a stock. I was lucky enough to get that opportunity and that led to my entry into the equities team in 2012. Can I ask what stock it was? It wasn't unwired, was it? No, it certainly wasn't. So actually, it wasn't a stock. It was actually to discuss the impact of the internet on retail. So I actually had a few stocks that year. I remember talking about businesses like Maya and JB Hi-Fi because it was at a time when Amazon was about to launch in Australia and there was a lot of traffic moving to, to online. It was quite early days though. And the market was fascinated with what does this mean for retail in this country? So Marianne, one of the senior analysts, gave me a project on that. And I must have done okay because I, I, I got an opportunity. And then from there, it was really just working my way through the team. I've been lucky to get some great opportunities and undoubtedly, there's an element of right place, right time as well. With senior people moving on, there's an opportunity for us to promote and perpetually love promoting from within because it's a continuation of the, the culture and the process. Just in terms of mentors, obviously, uh, mum and dad, not so much in an investing standpoint, just more life in general and who I am and, and my values. And professionally, I've been incredibly lucky. I've worked with a huge amount of fund managers here at Perpetual. There's been a lot of turnover in my time here, but I've, I've worked with some legends of the industry. And what I've tried to do is take a little bit of knowledge from all of them. They're all different personalities, different styles, but guided by the same sort of core investment process. So I've been really lucky to try and learn from, from them as much as possible. And still the senior members of the team today that I'm working with today, I'm learning from all the time. Like today, if I'm not mistaken, the 
the perpetual ESG Australian share fund has around 900 million in the fund. I don't know if that's just the fund itself, or if there are other strategies that touch on that. Does that ever strike you as like a pretty big responsibility? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So what we do is a, is a huge responsibility. At the end of the day, people have entrusted us with their hard-earned. And, you know, it's not something that's that's lost on me. It is a big responsibility. But look, I enjoy doing it. I mean, if I'm completely honest, in my younger days, it was probably a little more stressful. But you learn to deal with that. And I think going through a few different marketing environments helps with that education. You get to learn how to handle it, because I think a lot of investing is actually behavioural as well and trying to manage your emotions as best as possible. But look, it is it is absolutely a, a large responsibility. I think the pressure is also from uh, my wife when I say we've got all our money invested in the same fund. <laughs> I have to report to her on a nightly basis. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, because the only reason I ask that, well, it's obviously a big fund, right, and also that... Um, you seem relatively young comparatively to some of the managers that I speak to who are like maybe a decade or two on and maybe not even managing something like this. So it obviously speaks to like who you are and the performance of the fund and everything like that obviously speaks for itself as well. And I'm sure I could keep on going on about, and we'll, we'll drill into the fund in just a second, but maybe just to back a second, uh, you mentioned things like Perpetual as a business likes to hire internally I'm curious if you could comment, I know you only view the business from your perspective, but how you think of the business as a whole, what you do and your role, maybe touching on the culture as well of the business? Yeah, sure. So Perpetual now is very different to when I joined in, in 2010. So obviously we still have a private wealth business and a corporate trust business, but in recent years in particular, we've made a lot of acquisitions. So Perpetual today is global. We touch a lot of different asset classes. I mean, most recently we bought Pendle, which settled earlier this year. So we look across the business, we have global equities, Aussie equities, fixed income, multi-asset. We have dedicated ESG. We have growth bias investing, value investing, all sorts of stuff. So it's quite broad and diverse now. The business that I've been a part of, Australian equities, is a business that, I mean, the industrial share fund was launched in 1966. So it's a business with a lot of history and, and prestige without having worked in it, obviously, but observing and reading up on the history, it really kicked into gear in the 90s. And look, that's no accident just given compulsory super and how the industry changed in this country, but became quite a, a prominent fund manager in the 90s and early 2000s. And look, that's something where a lot of people have moved on and things have changed, but I'm pretty proud of because I think a lot of fund managers come and go and, and not Every fund works and performance tables have this incredible survivorship bias. But the longevity of Perpetual through many cycles is something that I'm fiercely proud of, even if I wasn't necessarily a part of it the, the whole time through. Look, culturally and, and process-wise, we have a pretty simple investment philosophy or simple to say, harder to put into practice around quality and value. So we are a valuation-aware investor I think sometimes people call us value investors. We are looking for quality and value. And the difficult part is obviously the trade-off between the two. It's not so obvious looking forward. It can be obvious in hindsight, but but trying to marry those two up, we're not deep value. So we're not looking at things that are necessarily bombed out, whether the leverage on the balance sheet is quite high and you're taking a lot of risk for potentially a huge return. 
we're a little bit away from that. We are looking for things of decent quality run by capable people that are profitable through a cycle. So we'll avoid avoid speculative things like buy now, pay later and, and things of that nature. It's a process which has really, I think, stood the test of time. And so I think that's why promoting from within is is so important. Historically, whenever a portfolio manager has left for whatever reason, and we run several strategies in our Aussie equities business, we have liked to promote from within for that cultural continuation. And, and so someone like Matt Williams, who was here, spent most of his career here before moving to Airlie. Jack Colopy, who's just left us, was 20 years here and did a terrific job on the small cap fund. Our former head of equities, Paul, was actually here in two stints. So he started in the mid-90s at Perpetual and came back a decade ago for, for another crack. So it's something we're, we're really proud of. I think it's just good for the investment philosophy and culture. Like People know what we stand for. People know how we do things. And I think it gives clients confidence that you know, sometimes the people may change, but the business and the process will stay the same. So they're in good hands for the medium to longer term, which I think is so critically important. I must admit, like when you see people with longer tenures in, like you said, the survivorship bias, but um, it also does speak to, I guess, the culture and the institution around managing money and what comes with that. I'd like to focus a little bit on the fund that you manage. And we were just talking off air about how there's effectively two different entry points. One is obviously through a listed vehicle and you have an ESG focus, which we'll talk to in a minute when it comes to that, but maybe just to at a high level, can you just tell us what the fund is and kind of the makeup of it? And then we'll go into your investment process. Yeah. So before we dig into the the process of the fund itself, so the fund is the Perpetual ESG Australian Share Fund. It was formerly known, excuse me, as our Australian Ethical SRI, Ethical SRI product. It's exactly the same, even though we've changed the name last year and there's two ways to access the product so the wholesale unit trust has been open for 20 plus years and that is where the bulk of the money sits at the moment we do have a separate unit class which is listed and it goes by the asx ticker give it's exactly the same portfolio there's no difference it's actually a subset of the one pool of assets but it does have a slightly different fee structure so the the fee on the wholesale fund is a fixed flat fee the give fee is a much lower base with a performance fee component. And to the extent that we perform or I perform and we generate that performance fee, Perpetual will be giving a portion of that to charity each year. And given the, the small size and the infancy of the product, we haven't done that yet, but that doesn't mean I, I don't have ambitions of making it something pretty big and, and pretty special through the fullness of time. So, yeah, the only difference is you can get give through your broker quite easily as opposed to going through forms or whatnot to access the unlisted unit trust product. Yeah, so you can access it. You can invest two ways, unlisted or by that broker, by your broker, which obviously makes a lot of sense. And also the fact that uh, some of that performance fee is shared will really, I guess, resonate with some of our community, particularly those that are, like I would say, ESG aware or socially aware. Can you talk a little bit about, so the ASX is obviously a pretty big place. Like, um, you know, there's over 2,000 shares. You could say you could filter out quite a few of them based on a few different things. But uh, I'm curious how you do do that. In fact, like you get down from this large universe, you've obviously got a big team around you, but how you get that down to a manageable list, the screens, the factors, the filters, everything that you pull apart and put into that model to then proceed with further research. 
Yeah, so there's a bit in there. And I guess if you think about a funnel, so the, I touched on our process and our philosophy. So we have four quality filters at Perpetual, which are gospel, basically. And, and this is before we get to the ESG component. So just quickly in a bit more depth than earlier. So we, we're looking at four things. Quality of business, which I, I touched on. So we're looking at good quality businesses, and that refers to things like industry structure and competitive positioning and, and acceptable returns on capital, recurring earnings. So as I said, profitable through a cycle or, or demonstrated a level of profitability as opposed to speculative or concept. Strong balance sheets, so low levels of, of gearing. We have some ratios around net debt to equity and interest coverage. And then capable management. We call it sound management. So at the end of the day, people are trusting us with their savings. We're also putting our trust in company management to act in the best interests of shareholders and do a, a sensible job. And just as an aside, I think that's probably one of the harder things to judge. And I think you learn from your mistakes there and, and hopefully get better through time. But I think that's one of the tricky things. And so if you think about applying those four filters, what that does is it kind of shrinks the funnel. We have a team of analysts who each cover perhaps 20 to 30 stocks closely. But look, as a team, we're meeting and talking about stocks all day long. So some will have formal responsibility, but obviously when a company comes in or we go see them, there'll be multiples of us and it's really an ongoing dialogue. My fund from there applies two more filters. So as an ESG fund, there are a number of things which are essentially excluded from investment from this portfolio. So we use a 5% revenue threshold. Some others in the market use slightly different numbers, but essentially we're excluding businesses in fossil fuel exploration and production, alcohol manufacture and distribution, gaming, so it might be wagering, pokies, lotteries, tobacco, weapons are the big ones. There's a couple of other screens, but they're not really relevant for the Australian market. So automatically, if you're in that line of business, you're excluded from investment in our portfolio. From there, there's one more screen, which we essentially score a company on their ESG performance. And so it's probably more of a, it used to be called the SRI screen. We call it the ESG screen now. It's really around scoring companies on each of the E, the F and the G. And in essence, you need a net positive score to be eligible for inclusion in the investment universe. And so some of the things we might be looking at, they're perhaps environmental performance. Where are they on their emissions reductions? Safety is a big one in terms of worker safety. Supply chain, you might think of manufacturing and in fashion, for example, or something that might be an issue. And obviously governance is a, a bit of a catch-all. We've always been acutely focused on, on governance and, and continue to be. So we kind of package it all up and if you're a net positive score, then you're you're available. So I've essentially just described six steps <laughs> to get through before you can then be eligible for inclusion in the portfolio. And then it comes down to valuation and uh, the recommendation of the analyst as to their risk reward on the stock, whether it looks attractive, unattractive, or better to wait for a new entry point. Then I build the portfolio. The end result's about 30 to 35 stocks. Because of that, uh, those screens, it does have a bias to mid and small cap industrials because you can imagine a lot of resource companies are excluded from the potential investment universe. So it does skew a particular way. But I guess the question I get asked quite a bit is, well, after you do all that, are there enough stocks? And there's still plenty of stocks, in my opinion, to make good returns. How many 
companies make it through loosely, like the two stages. So like the four factors that you look for, which are like financial or business quality factors. And then how many go from there through the, the two additional steps for ESG? Yeah, look, it's it's dynamic, but just in really broad numbers. So if you think about the 2,000-odd stocks on the ASX, in terms of stocks that are of meaningful enough size, that might be somewhere like 400 to 450. In terms of in the universe, that'll probably be in the high 200s. And then I'll probably, it changes, but rough numbers, I'll screen out probably another 50 or 60. I think the, the interesting thing, though, is a lot of the companies that are screened out are quite big in terms of market capitalization. So the number might be small, but it might be something like BHP or Woodside or Aristocrat. And very quickly, you start knocking out a lot of the top 100, which is what creates that bias to mid and, and small cap. We can invest in large, obviously, and we do have large caps in the portfolio, but the, the skew of the portfolio is quite different to the benchmark. Yeah, definitely. When So you go through this process of like, you've got like four factors, quality of the business, recurring earnings, strong balance sheets, and sound management. Like, for example, sound management, you said that's like a, a difficult one, and I'd agree with you there. Do you quantify that? Is it more a qualitative thing, like an accumulation of uh, research amongst the teams? Or is it something that you can put some metrics to as well, maybe like LTIs or like long-term incentives or perhaps maybe like return on invested capital as a measure for capital allocation or something like that? All of the above, all of the above. So it's not strictly quantitative. There is an element of experience. And I think one of the strengths of our team and the depth and experience of our team is people have a lot of corporate knowledge and even the younger members can still discuss with uh, more experienced members about executives in, in prior roles. And you kind of build that experience through time. You're absolutely right though. Things that you can look at to see, to kind of give you a guide, how they're incentivized. So how their LTIs are set and indeed what metrics they're targeting. You touched on return on invested capital. I mean, that's my favorite because I think a lot of people just focus on EPS and don't even think about return on invested capital. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. We're looking for how people are incentivized. And I think when I alluded to some of the challenges in assessing management, obviously we're looking at their history in terms of capital allocation. I mean, I think capital allocation is such an important part of their role. At the end of the day, they're running a live organisation, they're managing hundreds, if not thousands of people. There's all these different skills required, but you make all these profits and then at the end of the year, you've got to decide what to do with it. Do you give it back? Do you reinvest it? And I think one of the, the things that perhaps can annoy us from time to time, I was trying to choose the word, but I'll say annoy, is a bad acquisition. So potentially use of balance sheet capital or optionality could be going into too much debt, paying a lot of goodwill for a business with minimal tangible assets. I mean, they're things where you can destroy a lot of value. And I think the difficulty in that is someone can be really disciplined for a long period of time and then blow it all in one silly transaction. So I think there's a range of things you can look at. And we've actually done some project work where we've thought about, you know, what makes a good CEO. And we've tried to, to have some pointers, but it is very much something you, you learn from experience and, and from building relationships with these people over the course of your career. I'm kind of catch you off guard here, Nathan, and ask you, like, in your opinion, what does make for a good CEO? Like if there's just speaking in general terms, or you could use an example even, I'm curious, like who would spring to mind or what type of personality springs to mind? 
to make you think because it's a very soft thing, right? Like a lot of people have to use intuition or feel for things and it's hard to measure that necessarily. People talk to me about like obviously measuring body language and the words that we use, whether we use I or we or, you know, insourcing responsibility, outsourcing success or whatever. I'm curious, like any of those types of things that you think can help or like add to the character of a CEO that's worthy of your money? Yeah. So I think firstly, passion for the business. You can tell when someone's a a gun for hire. And we find this a lot with owner managers or founder-led businesses that their passion for the business is infectious. And so how does that manifest? We see it in attention to detail when you're at a meeting post results or something you're catching up with the company and their knowledge for the numbers and it might be minute numbers in far flung locations it might be the smallest store in their in the country in their network but they're all over the detail or like you know they're walking the floors day to day and we try and build that as well through feedback so if we're talking to customers or suppliers or former or current employees we try and get a feel for how they're viewed within the business as well that's really important I think, look, the passion element is obviously a big part of it. And I think, as I said, the founder mentality is just very different. So in their decision-making, they're very much focused on the medium to long-term, they're focused on the sustainability of, of the business in the truest sense of the word. And often the balance sheets are, are far more conservative because they're ready for any eventuality. Just some other things, you did catch me off guard, but something I think about Perhaps other people think I'm a bit strange, but just how they dress you and how they address members of your team and, and things like that. And I guess it's more, you know, is there an arrogance or just something about the person doesn't sit well and you kind of think, well, if they're likely they're going to be a leader, how are people going to look up to them and, and you know, want to work hard for them and get results? So that's a, another little quirky thing that I, I think about as well. Yeah, that's no, fair. There's some investors that I follow religiously and one of them from the US says, when he remarks about management teams, he says, if I don't like you, I don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) He's not going to invest with you if he doesn't like who you are. And it's important to him because like we were talking about where he puts his money is really important to him and who he supports and who he doesn't support. Right. And that's effectively why a huge push for like responsible investment. Right. And um, that it all counts at the end of the day. So I'm curious, you mentioned like, acquisitions before as a way for some companies to go off the beaten path a bit. What happens to if, say, for example, a company makes an acquisition and it pushes you over your limit, like if you've got a 5%, no more than 5% alcohol, for example, and that all of a sudden and I've got pubs or whatever, is it immediate sell? Do you consult with the business? Like how does that work? So it is clear cut, like it's a sell. I guess it depends on the nature of the transaction so if it's a a permanent thing so not a temporary thing like say for example they buy a business but they're going to divest a bad part of it in the imminent future then okay we'd probably look through that but if they've made a change and they're clearly over the threshold and it looks that way for the foreseeable future then it is a sell we do have 60 days to do that but my view is like to the extent we don't impact the price or there's available liquidity in my view is it's best to move on as, as quickly as possible so we have got that 60 day period but look if the fundamentals or facts change then you know we have to be true to label and, and true to our process and so we'll move it on as quickly as possible do you ever um like quantify i'm guessing you do quantify 
the value of that extra screen and in particular like the factor like because you could maybe benchmark it against something else if you get what I mean yeah it's an interesting one I think what I would say is we haven't tried to quantify the factor specifically however I think one of the interesting things from where I sit is this whole notion of ESG as something that's completely separate whereas my view is it's actually integral to the investment process. So I think of ESG, so notwithstanding this fund that I manage as a, a what would be called a negative screen fund, and there's all sorts of different funds in the market. Some might be more sustainability focused or positive impact. Look, ours isn't, but that's just an aside. But in terms of ESG, I just think it helps you make better investment decisions. I view it as an extension of the quality of business. So, for example, take a business that has really poor employee relations or or challenges in that regard. They're likely to see higher absenteeism. They're likely to see higher turnover and potentially even safety problems, right? Or maybe the two are related and and that hits the bottom line. A company facing into an energy transition that is ill-equipped or not taking it seriously eventually will get punished, whether that's through carbon pricing or the safeguard mechanism. So, these are things that companies are facing every day. So obviously run a, a particular fund and particular product, but I, I don't think you can separate it from the investment decision-making process. The other thing I'll, I'll add lastly is, whilst we haven't looked at the factors specifically, the history of the fund and the performance through its cycles, like over time, suggests that there's certainly no detriment the performance from these screens. I think that's one way you could look at it as well. And we, we're very clear that it's an ESG fund, but it's also an extension of the core perpetual process. So what makes it work, in our opinion, is not necessarily the filters in isolation, but the filters combined with our fundamental process. So as an extension of that, the returns since inception have been quite good, which we're very proud of and, and hope to continue. But there's certainly no detriment to return from overlaying the ESG screens is one way to think about it. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at. It's like the funds performed so well since inception that I'd wondered how much of that could be given to that extra step of the investment process. And Yeah, you know, in the last three years, it's actually been a headwind because like resource stocks and, you know, I'm thinking of things like coal, Oil and gas, although they've been weaker of late the last three to six months, you know, they've been material headwinds to relative performance because we are benchmarked to the ASX 300. Some of the things we actually can't invest in. But my view is like that evens out through a cycle. So when, say, for example, resource stocks are doing really well and they are a large part of the index, that is going to be a headwind to performance. It doesn't mean we can't outperform, but it does make it more difficult. We can also get a tailwind if the reverse occurs. So say, for example, BHP was a material underperformer and fell by 30%, like I'd get a massive free kick, probably look a lot, a lot smarter than I actually am. <laughs> but so that can ebb and flow. And in recent years, it's actually been more of a headwind than a, than a tailwind. But as I said, I think it evens out uh, through the fullness of time. Do you think, like obviously lately, and I mean lately, like the last five years, do you think that a lot of the kind of money that we're seeing flow into ESG or responsible style funds, do you think that's a sustainable characteristic in particular with the last few years, as you say, 
like a bit of a washout of higher quality companies that may be considered those more ethical or responsible companies. Do you think that shakes out investors or do you think those investors who are seeking ESG are very sticky and here to stay? I think it's a terrific question because I think a little bit of both, (laughs) but I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. I think many investors would have would have gone towards ESG. And I think there was undoubtedly a factor benefit because a lot of ESG, particularly globally, would have been focused on tech and, and healthcare and growthier type businesses that benefited. And I think it was probably a degree of, of performance chasing and, and people probably thought they were doing the right thing, but really they were just long tech and healthcare and multiples were expanding as rates fell from mid-single digit to zero and stayed there for a long period of time. As that's unwound, that's been trickier for investors, definitely. I think, though, the clients who want to invest sustainably, I do think they're here to stay. And the reason I do say that is, you know, we get that feedback from clients. So there's, there's perhaps less interest just given some of the short-term performance challenges, but there still is a strong underlying interest. And whenever I speak to advisors, certainly the younger client base, the younger cohorts are very much interested. And I think as the younger generation and as wealth is transferred in the fullness of time, they're going to be making the investment decisions. I think they're definitely committed. I think they just need to be aware of exactly what they're signing up for. And what I mean by that, I think with the advent of all those ESG flows and a lot of products popping up and managers seeking to rebadge old funds as sustainable and this and that, you have to be careful. And we've seen the regulator tackle greenwashing and I I don't think they're done yet. I think it's just so important that advisors or direct investors, clients understand exactly what they're getting into and transparency is key. So how does the fund screen? Is it a negative screen or a positive screen? Is it an impact fund? Because there's a whole different risk profile there. Do they make the holdings publicly available? Do they communicate regularly, whether it's through a newsletter or a fund profile? Like I think they're all really important things to make sure investors understand what they're buying because as, as flows were really strong, the temptation was there for corporates, right, to, to overstate their credentials. I think the regulator is going to put a stop to that. But I think um, if you're a genuine manager with the right values and the right approach and you're transparent about how you go about it, I think that'll continue to be supported by the client base for sure. Mm, I tend to agree. I tend to agree that for so many investors, and particularly, as you said, the investors who understand the, the shorter-term risks that may come with investing in a fund similar to the one that you're running, like the potential for temporary underperformance because, say, coal stocks or something has run really hard, which you may not be exposed to just out of necessity. So people can understand that. And I think we are seeing more literacy in that space, both amongst advisors and amongst direct investors or even larger institutions that are finally figuring that out. I think that's like that level of understanding brings with it stickier like uh, investors as well, which is great news for folks like yourself. Nathan, um, just before we wrap up, I've got one final question for you. How can people find out more about you or or the fund or the listed vehicle? Where can they go to get that information? Sure. So the listed vehicle, the ticker is GIVE, G-I-V-E. So uh, you can punch that into your, your broker website or, or on the ASX website. Look, me personally, my beautiful mugshot, <laughs> I'm laughing as I say that, 
is uh, on the Perpetual website, but I'm also on LinkedIn as well. I'm not sure how updated my profile is, but I'm there. <laughs> but look, we have a raft of information on our website. I uh, publish a newsletter quarterly. I put it up on LinkedIn, but that's also on the website. And our fund profiles are on there. We also publish things like the emissions intensity of the portfolio. If clients find that interesting and how that's been trending over time, as I said, we like to be transparent so people know exactly what they're invested in and how that moves over time as well. So, look, my best recommendation would be to have a quick look at the Perpetual website under the Australian Shares page and go from there. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. Your uh, your monthlies are. Like they come with a lot of commentary, as you said, and it's um, for a monthly, it's very like comprehensive compared to a lot of the letters that I see from managers and so on. So definitely worth the read if you're following along at home. My final question is one that I haven't asked a guest for a while, and I'm curious to get your opinion on this, which is just like if you could go back in time, if you could find the younger Nathan, maybe it's before you started the ASX share market game, maybe it's after... But if you could go back and tell yourself one thing about finance, business, investing, money, life, whatever, free ranking, what would it be? <laughs> I'll say two things. Look, firstly, with investing, like just start yesterday. Start as early as you can, whether it's there's saving. But like the compounding truly is a wonder and it's a beautiful thing. And you always wish you started that little bit earlier. Instead of the start, it's time in the market. So just get going and saving a little bit as quickly as you possibly can. And then just life. I mean, don't sweat the small stuff. It's probably nothing revolutionary. But I think in our game, we are bombarded daily with noise. There's news flow. There's brokers. Companies are doing things. There's political goings on. But like at the end of the day, you really got to focus on what makes a company tick and one or two key things that are going to move the needle for that company over the next three to five years. So try and focus on the bigger picture. Don't worry about all the noise. Don't worry about trying to know absolutely everything about everything. Keep your head down, be sensible, focus on the medium to longer term. I truly believe allocators will probably scoff at this, but I truly believe time horizon is like one of the last edges left. And I talked about behavioural finest and how important that is so i think that ability to zoom out don't worry about the little things focus on the medium to long term and the bigger picture will stand you in pretty good stead yeah i couldn't agree more mate i truly believe that too that the the behavioral advantage is the one that people should exploit it's probably the one that you'll have the most most good time uh, focusing on like you if you focus on trying to get more information or do better analytics or a finer model i think that's going to be less rewarding for people as we move forward with tools that can do that for us. Well, that's right. The areas where I'm just not smart enough to compete. So we have to bring it back to where we think we can add value and, and that's analysing a business. But taking a medium to long-term view, I think um, you know, alternate data and real-time data just makes things even more short-term. And you know, when we're looking at stocks, we're looking at cash flows into hopefully perpetuity. And so the value of that changes a lot less than uh, what you might see in the screens on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I also resonate with your focus on a few key things for a business. I think we so often, I think many mistakes for direct stock investors actually come from their inability to truly grasp what a company does in the first instance, like the emotive reasons that customers choose them, that stakeholders choose them. And they often miss out on this idea that like, there's only really probably a few things that matter. There's only a few reasons that this business exists. What are they? Uh, and try to like not get 
bombarded and put your shield up against all those other things that kind of derail your focus. I think that's really good advice, mate, and a great way to great way to end the discussion. So if you want to find out more about Nathan or the, or the funds that he runs, you can head to the Perpetual website. There'll be a link in the show notes, mate. Thanks for taking some time to join me today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. I had a great time and uh, appreciate the opportunity. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.